Join us as we examine one chapter of hope and 26 chapters of wrath. Welcome to Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. My name is Keith, and this is Brandon, and we are pastors here in Santa Cruz, California at Gospel Community Church. Welcome, like, subscribe, comment, helps us out, helps the gospel out. Brandon, what are we talking about today? We're talking about Isaiah Part 2, and yes, there's. I think there's a little bit more than one chapter of hope in the midst of these chapters of wrath, but you know. Maybe. I think cumulatively we can assume it's around one chapter. Yeah. Yeah. This is the the more darker portion of the book. Yeah. Yeah. So... Anyway, it's going to be a great encouragement to you today, so uh, enjoy today as we enter our second week in the book of Isaiah. Let's get an overview of the prophetic books where we're at right now. Yeah, so like I said, these uh, five major prophets are we're in right now, starting with Isaiah, and that's followed by the 12 minor prophets. Mm-hmm. And um, these, again, that's not, the, that's not the importance of the books, that's just how they're titled. But Isaiah <clears throat> is this key book that brings out so many theological themes in Scripture, yeah. Very, very crucial, yep. quoted so heavily in the New Testament. And uh, Isaiah's name means Yahweh saves. Yep. So he's going to focus on that salvation of God. But it's a lot about judgment, as the, all the prophets are, but also followed by God's salvation. Right. And he's really going to show us, at the end of the book, the ultimate salvation of God. But we're in this section that we've talked about last week. The, the book is sort of broken into two major parts. The first section, which is chapters 1 to 39, which are kind of generally speaking, Old Covenant-focused, looking at um, a lot more judgment mm-hmm. with you know with definitely hope throughout. But in the second half, uh, the last 27 chapters, 40 to 66, are more about the kind of a New Covenant focus, right. salvation and uh, consummation. So in this part of the book, we're going to see a lot about the God himself, his sovereignty, this um, that he's the only God. Mm-hmm. We're going to see that theme brought out a lot. Monotheism. Yes, yeah. that he's the Holy One of Israel. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see a little bit throughout about the coming of the Messiah, but probably not as much as we saw last week right. and not as much as next week for sure. Yep. So, And then there's some amazing verses sprinkled throughout about the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to start to illuminate that topic for us as well. Very Super cool. important Very to, cool. to the scripture, obviously. So yeah, that's kind of where we're at. So we're going to be looking today. We're in that first section, 1 to 39, the first major section. And within that, we're going to see... Uh, chapters 13 to 23 are judgment on the nations mm-hmm. uh, around Israel. Yep. And then it actually expands to, in chapters 24 or 27, judgment on the entire earth. Yeah. And then we'll look again, uh, chapters 28 to 35, on the judgment of the wicked and the salvation of God's people. Mm-hmm. And then the final three chapters, or four chapters, 36 to 39, are a narrative account of something we've already seen before. Right. So we'll get we'll get there. It's kind of at the center of the book and it plays an interesting role in the book. Very cool. Awesome. Well, before we get into today's reading starting in 13, I want to just talk about a general question that seems to come up from time to time in my conversations with people around the church. And that's why is, you know, the God of the Old Testament or even just the reading of the Old Testament, why is it filled with such wrath and judgment when compared to the New Testament which seems much more lighthearted? Yeah. I would think that the person who's asking that um, maybe hasn't read the Old Testament closely enough or the New Testament closely enough, mm-hmm. because there's so much hope in the Old Testament as well. Yes, a ton of judgment, but it's all it's all for a purpose. 
Right, which is ultimate mean, salvation. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to be fair, there's like you know, like some of the, you know the imprecatory psalms, or even like here in Isaiah where we see like the killing of babies and stuff like that. You know? Yeah, it's pretty strong language, right? Yeah, yeah. So again, I think there's there's more grace in the Old Testament than we often think. Mm-hmm. There's also much more wrath in the New Testament than we often think. For sure, the the New Testament maybe doesn't have as much of those the focus on um, armies killing things like that. Although there is some of that. But it is focused a lot on the judgment of God in hell, mm-hmm. which in my book is, is much more terrifying than any sort of human judgment or any sort of earthly temporal judgment. Right. I mean, this is eternal judgment. And so the person who speaks the most about hell is Jesus right. in the entire Bible. He references it a lot. So it is. So often people have said that really what happens is that in the, old, in the New Testament that both judgment and God's grace and mercy are ramped up. Uh, there's a there's a higher amount or greater amount, so to speak, of those things, but clearly because of Jesus's work on the cross, his taking of judgment for us, there's also an emphasis on grace and mercy because that ministry is being brought to f- fulfillment right, right in Jesus, and we see that that answer, that solution to our to our problem. So I don't think I would be very careful to say that there's you know more judgment, so to speak, in the Old Testament, maybe by volume of text, yeah, but uh, but not in the sense of the severity of God's wrath and, and the seriousness of it and our response to it. What I would say is that the, the New Testament gives us the answer to those things. Right. So it's not as if the Old Testament God is a like an angry teenager, right? Like he's going through puberty and, yeah. and then he matures in the New Testament and starts to get chill and just kind of go with the flow. No, it's that there's a solution provided in Jesus Christ. Right. That's very helpful. And I, I think it's very helpful to, to, think of, to think of the finality of the punishments that we're seeing, right? I feel like through most of the reading of the Old Testament, the punishment is a refining kind of punishment. We even saw it in, you know, Isaiah chapter, is it six, yeah. you know, where, you know, Isaiah has the coal put on his mouth. I think it's super helpful because... Yeah, coal hurts, it burns, it sears, but it's refining, you know, right? It's not a finality thing. When you when you talk about eternity and hell, which Jesus talks about the majority of the time, that's a scary thing, right? That's all I'd rather have my lips burned by a hot object than <laughs> spend an eternity with my whole body being consumed, right? Oh yeah. So Yeah, absolutely terrifying. So Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think it's helpful to think through for us as as we're thinking through judgment as we're reading stuff that seems totally foreign to our culture and our, you know, way of thinking, um to see the grace in the Old Testament because there always is grace. There's always that remnant that we keep saying here. Um but there's also just as much in the New Testament. I think we just got to be careful readers of scripture and be looking at the the overall story and it, it makes a lot more sense, I think. Yeah. And of course, why why the focus on judgment because sin deserves judgment. That's what yeah. Isaiah recognized, right? Mm-hmm. What was me? Right. I, I have unclean lips, right? Like I'm guilty and I'm seeing God and I all, all of a sudden realize how big the gap is between me and God. Right. And so that's that's why judgment is focused on because we have a problem mm-hmm. that we have to deal with, but that problem can't be fixed by us. Yeah. It only comes through humbling ourselves, turning to God, asking for his grace and forgiveness. Right. That's 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 actually a really great point. I like that because we never want to minimize um, the wrath that is due sin, right? Yeah. 
And I, th- I feel like we want to do that. <laughs> yeah. reason. Like we want to look at the New Testament and don't see wrath. Like, no, wrath was placed on Jesus so we wouldn't have to. Like, wrath it's, is... It's like a modern pathology. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so just like with anything, just to say, you're not, you're not that bad, you're going to be okay, to, to soothe yeah. with our words. Right. We can talk about why that is, but that's definitely a, yeah, another conversation. a modern era. Well, I, I think that's helpful. I hope it's helpful to you guys as you listen. Um, as we think through the Old Testament, the New Testament, and God's judgment, and God's grace... Yeah, I think that's super helpful. So let's get into the text in Isaiah. We're in uh, chapters 13, starting there, and we're going to go all the way through as far as we can get, I think, around we're gonna, Yeah, we're going to go to 39. But here's the thing. We're not going to cover every chapter. We're going to skim over some of these um, because it would be very long. Yeah, some of the Bible's worth skipping over. Yeah, some of it's just... Yeah, yeah. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> I've, God, forgive us. Forgive us. Um, no, of course not. But I, I think I want to get some of the big themes here. So... What we're going to see is God speaking to specific nations mm-hmm. or surrounding Israel. Yeah. So God is not just the God over Israel; He's the God over all the nations. Now, right. th- back in that time, when they would look at their own power and their own importance on the global scene, the nations would determine their God's power based upon that, right. based upon their own preeminence or their own stature. So the gods who are powerful must be the gods who have nations that conquer. Right. So you're. Your, your victory and your God's victory are tied together. What we're going to see here, so there's a natural tendency if you're an Israelite to think maybe God isn't that strong because we keep losing. Mm-hmm. And what God is going to say is, no, you keep losing because you <laughs> sinned. Faithful, yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm doing that. I'm not just allowing this to happen. I'm actually choosing this to happen because it's part of my judgment on you. And not only am I supreme over you, Israel, and in control, but I'm supreme over every nation. Yeah. So he's challenging this idea of competing gods that he's less. He's saying, actually, there is no God but me. Well, it's like it's it's so funny because it's been like God has repeatedly warned and and predicted that the moment of exile will come to you guys, and you guys, everything you have is going to be destroyed if you're not faithful to me. Like he's, right, he, yeah. God has been predicting it the whole time. So like, yeah, yeah, it's pretty nuts. Cool. So, so, let's, so let's jump in then. Yeah. yeah. So in chapter thirteen, we see some talk about the day of the Lord. Um, verse verse six, verse nine. This is uh, a, a day. This is very important in the, in the prophets. The day of the Lord is a mm-hmm. day of judgment. So it's pointing to the final day of judgment, that where God's going to bring everyone to account. But we see pictures of it throughout history. Right. In verse seventeen, we actually see reference to the Medes, and in nineteen, we see reference to Babylon. Now Babylon's going to take a lot of a lot of precedence. <laughs> Nice, Caleb. Um, Babylon's going to be focused on a bunch in this section, mm-hmm. which is strange because Assyria was the, the enemy they were facing. Mm. So we'll see that in the end of this of this big section in 36 to 39. They're dealing with Sennacherib in Assyria. Right. Babylon is not really even a major player yet. Right. But God's going to emphasize them because he's pointing to the future right. and the importance that Babylon will play. Now think, of, think back. I know we didn't probably focus much on this when we were in Genesis uh, 10 and 11 and 12 because there was other really big topics but that's where we see the origin of Babylon mm-hmm. is with the Tower of Babel story and really right. the chapter before Genesis chapter 10 where this guy Nimrod right founds Assyria well Nineveh and he founds Babylon right oh, and, and Abraham comes from that people so yeah so these two big nations these enemies against Israel come from this rebellious man right. who is a mighty man all, the, all these things right and uh, and then in chapter 11 we see that they actually the, ba- the, the Babylonians 
um, from Babel, they go against God and they build this tower and they rebel against him and they refuse to disperse to the earth and they want to make their own name great. So this is the spirit of Babylon mm-hmm. and it has a huge importance throughout the, the entire scope of the Bible from Crazy. Genesis to Revelation yeah. where it's this picture of this final kingdom against God. Mm. And, um, and even in chapter 12 of Genesis, well, end of chapter 11, we see Abraham coming out of Ur of the Chaldees. Right. So the first, so Ur of the Chaldees, the Chaldeans being the Babylonians. Mm-hmm. So the first Jew was actually a Babylonian. Right. So God can take these rebels against him and transform them into something good. Mm-hmm. But there's a clear symbol of Babel as or Babylon as the uh, antithesis of who God is. Yeah. And the anti-Zion, the anti-Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So these themes are going to come out a lot. In fact, in chapter 14, what we see is that Babylon is associated with Satan. Mm. So there's language in this text that it's it, this happens in uh, in chapter 14 of Isaiah. It's going to happen in Ezekiel 28. It happens actually kind of a couple times right. in the prophets, but where God is speaking to someone, mm-hmm. to a group of people or to a king, and then he starts to speak in a way that would not make sense if he was speaking to a human. Right. And so you could think of it maybe as these exalted metaphors to speak about the evil of this person, or what many scholars have argued is that God's actually speaking to a spiritual power behind mm-hmm. that throne right. or that kingdom. So that's what I think we have here. I think that's the better way to understand it. So he's ch- he's saying that judgment's going to come to Babylon in chapter 14. And then he starts to speak about ver- chapter, verse 12. He says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. So day star there is the word Lucifer. I think I think it's, that's in Latin. Mm-hmm. Don't don't quote me on that, but that's that's where we get the word Lucifer from. You know, I actually had a, I think I told you this probably, but I had, I had a fr- me and Laura had a friend who was going to a church called like Morning Star Church, <laughs> and I was like, isn't that? Did you go to Lucifer Church? Is that what? <laughs> and she's like, oh, it, it's Jesus is called the Morning Star. I'm like, yeah, so is so is Satan, but <laughs> you know, ticky tack. I'm just saying, if you're gonna name, if you're gonna name your church, don't name it the Flood. Don't name it Lucifer Church. Don't yeah, don't probably like, bad choices. There's a lot of great options out there. Yeah, and there's a lot of other bad options that are better than those options. Right? That's right. So yeah, yeah. There, there's plenty of bad options. The Church of Satan. From. Let's stay away from that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so anyway, so there's this reference to this day star, the, the name Lucifer, um, but in verse 13 we see that he's he had this extreme pride. So verse 13 says, "You said in your heart." I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. Mm-hmm. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. So this is someone who wanted to ascend to God's throne. It, it really does show the spirit of Babel right? when you think about the, the Babel story, but it's speaking about someone who is more powerful, who was the, you know, this well, literally a satanic influence because it's, it's, we believe this is Satan. Right. Um, but verse 15, but you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who mm. shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities? So he goes on to talk about how you're, you're in the grave, right? Verse, verse 19, you're clothed with the slain. 
Um, so the, the language here seems to be so lofty. This is where we get the idea that this is actually speaking about a power behind Babylon. Right. That, that Satan loves, seems to love to influence those in the greatest positions of power right. and corrupt them for his evil purposes. Well, it's, I mean, it's also, I feel like this verse is also, this section, this chapter 14, is also, uh, again, focusing on God's sovereignty. You know, if indeed this is talking about Satan and, and Satan's the power behind all the evil powers that be and the evil gods that are talked about and made up, then God is showing his power even over the most powerful thing that we can imagine on this earth, right? Yeah. So God's sovereignty, again, is exercised in his, uh, his control even of the most evil things, you know? Yeah, so. that's absolutely right. Oh. Very true. So we go on. We want to see judgment on Philistia. Oh, judgment. Okay, this is the awesome section. This is just judgment, 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 judgment. judgment. judgment on Moab in chapter fifteen, chapter sixteen. And this is right judgment. These 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 nations surely deserve this judgment. That's right. Yeah. Damascus chapter seventeen, Cush chapter eighteen, Egypt chapter nineteen. Ah, oh, the judgment. Oh, so much judgment. And all of this judgment, though, as we mentioned earlier, is meant to point these nations back to God. Right. That's the idea. So we see in chapter 16, in the, in the context of this judgment against Moab, Israel's neighbor Moab, we see a reference to the Davidic king in chapter 16, verse 5. It says, Then the throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and mm. is swift to do righteousness. So the hope of Moab, of this foreign nation, is for the true Davidic king to come and to reign. Right. And to bring that peaceful reign and that just reign that we heard about in chapter 9. So there's a reference there. We see that God himself, they're going to be led back to God himself in the oracle against Damascus, chapter 17, in verse 7. It says, In that day man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his own hands, and he will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. So people are going to turn back to God. They're going to turn away from idols and turn back to God. So mm -hmm. judgment is meant to lead them to salvation, right. to God. We yeah, see it's this not in, final. Like, yeah. You know. We see this in chapter 19 as well. This is, these are some of the most amazing passages in this section, I yeah. think. We'll, we'll get there. I can't get over verse 24. Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll get there for yeah. sure. Yeah, Chapter 19, 19, it says, Then that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. I know, that's what I'm saying, what? this whole section. I'm like, ah. Egypt's going to have an altar to God and a pillar to the Lord as at its border. Verse 21, The Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord. So God's going to bring a revival in Egypt, in the ancient enemy of Israel. Right. This picture of of their one of their worst enemies right. that he that he destroyed in judgment in the book of Exodus. He's going to actually save them. But it goes on to say, verse twenty three, in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not just that Egyptians are going to worship God, but the Assyrians will too. They'll come to worship Yahweh in Egypt. In, verse 24, in that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. So Israel is going to be like third place compared to how much God's going to bring the Egyptians and Assyrians. So you have the past enemy of Israel and the current enemy of Israel, right? both being brought into the salvation that comes from hmm. under the Davidic king. It's I mean, this is inc this is incredible. 
So God's giving some amazing prophecies, right. even in these chapters of judgment. Mm-hmm. God has a plan to rescue even the oppressor right. from sin and to bring them into salvation. That's awesome. Yeah, how, how is that not a hopeful Old Testament passage, right? Yeah, oh. uh, incredible. And again, it's like, you, you, probably if you're listing this, it's, it's more likely that you're that you're a Gentile than a Jew. Mm-hmm. So when you hear e- Egypt and, Assy- and Assyria, like think of yeah, yourself. Yeah, me, yeah. I mean, those are these these distant nations that weren't part of God's people are brought in. Right. Yeah, amen. Chapter twenty, I, we got, they got a great sign of judgment. There's not a whole <laughs> lot of signs like this in in uh, Isaiah. Ezekiel is really gonna perfect the signs. <laughs> it's the, the I can't the wait poop, for Ezekiel. Poop bread. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll get great. there, but. Um, in chapter twenty, he's got a great sign, which is that God tells him to wear, to wear sackcloth, um, and and take off, or sorry, to loose the sackcloth from his waist and take off his sandals from his feet. So he's walking around naked and barefoot. Mm-hmm. And then verse three, get this. He says, "The Lord said, as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years, <laughs> three three with buttocks uncovered, no doubt." <laughs> As a sign and a portent again to Egypt. So he's doing this as a sign of what's going to come upon them. But I just want to point out, like, that's some commitment. He's a legend. Three years of <laughs> walking around naked and barefoot. Um, I mean, that's like our, my children, but it's a little different. Right? <laughs> it's a little different. Yes. So, yeah, we'll see a lot. If you like that, we're, you're going to see a lot more of that in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. We see judgment on Babylon again in chapter 21. Right, and then again, he sets his sights on Jerusalem itself. So, mm-hmm. in the midst of all these nations, Jerusalem, chapter twenty-two, will also be destroyed, will be judged, and um, and so God's people are facing the same judgment as the rest of the world because they're living like the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And and we we see actually in chapter in chapter twenty-two, verse ten, there's a mention of or verse nine. It says that they saw the breaches of the city of David were many, and they collected the waters of the lower pool, and they counted the houses of Jerusalem and broke down the houses to fort. They're doing all these preparations to to stand against the enemies uh, that they have. And yet, in verse 11, he says, but you did not look to him mm. who did it or see him who planned it long ago. You're ch- you're trying so hard to defend yourself against the enemy, to, to fortify your city, to make yourself safe, right. but you won't look to God, right. the one who's in charge of everything. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. Is there a parallel in all day, our day of people seeking safety but not seeking God? Mm, no. I can't think of any. But, well, yeah. So then we see judgment in, in, on Tyre and Sidon in chapter 23. You getting the, the point of the judgment here? Love it. I just really want to I'm emphasize that. I'm soaking it up. And as if that wasn't enough, then we see a turn in <laughs> chapters 24 and 27 of judging the entire earth. Yep. So if, you, if you're like, oh, man, phew. They missed out on California. You know, they had all these judgments, but like, oh, we're safe. No, okay, not not well. really. So verse chapter 24, verse 1, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. So God's going to wipe the slate clean. Verse 6, a curse devours the earth. I mean, just that, that, that language in the first verse. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, and this this chapter is all about cosmic judgment. We see this at the very end of the chapter, verses so twenty four verses twenty one to twenty three. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven, in heaven, and the kings of the earth on the earth. Hmm. And then verse twenty three says, "The moon will be confounded, the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before His elders." Hmm. So God's glory is shining at the end. 
as he's judging heavens and earth, right. everything. So there's going to be this final judgment. But God's glory will shine in the midst of that. Right. God's glory, which is a terror to those who are evildoers, just as, as uh, Isaiah beheld God's glory and was terrified because right. he was sinful. Um, and it's, it's, but it's a, a gift to those who have been redeemed by God. Mm. It's the ultimate good for us when we see God's glory. 25, chapter 25, we see um, some incredible things about resurrection, the incredible picture of God's, God's ultimate re- redemption of his people. Mm-hmm. 25, verse 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, Right. Of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. That sounds good. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing this picture of a, of a final feast, this wedding celebration that we'll see in the end of the end of the Bible as well. Verse seven: He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, hmm. the veil that is spread over all nations. What is that covering? What is that shroud that covers everyone? Yeah. Verse eight: He will swallow up death forever, hmm. and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Yeah, that doesn't sound like, that sounds like Revelation, right? Yes, that's like, yeah, verbatim, Revelation. Verse nine, it'll be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Mm. So resurrection is gonna happen. Death itself will be defeated. Right. And God's going to bring life and joy into the earth. Yeah, again, so much more clarity in uh, the work of the Messiah and God's ultimate plan of redemption. Like this language, like this specifically has not, we haven't heard it this far in the story, right? Yeah. So it's, I mean, if Job could have heard that, right? If yeah. Job could have heard <laughs> Isaiah saying, yeah, there's going to be a time where exactly what you want, Job, will be given to you, resurrection, but with all the blessings, all the blessings right. of the universe, everything God can give that's good to his people, he'll give to his people. Yeah. I mean, what? how would that have changed Job's perspective? Yeah. Yeah, amazing. And again, like we've seen tastes of this kind of salvation even from the beginning, Genesis, you know, three, right? Mm-hmm. So we've seen the taste of God's redemptive salvation, but God is making it clear over the course of history what His actual plan is going to be, and it's a beautiful plan, right? Yeah. One that we could never have planned ourselves. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Chapter twenty-six, verse three. Just a great verse. The song that they're going to sing in Judah in that day, right? But. Just this, this snippet from it, verse 3. You, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Mm-hmm. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Mm. Oof, I love that so much, the, that if you keep your mind on, on God, if you trust in God, you have peace from God. That's an incredible promise in Scripture. So we see uh, a reference of resurrection again in 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Hmm. So really hammering home this point of resurrection. Also a victory over Satan. Right. We saw in chapter 14 this identity of someone that is Satan, this Lucifer. In chapter 27 we see, though, that in that day, verses 27 verse 1, in that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Hmm. So God's going to have victory over this serpent, Satan, and 
some really important verses in 27, starting in verse 2, mm-hmm. where he says, in that day a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. So if you were listening last week, right, chapter 5 speaks of a vineyard that doesn't bear any fruit right. and is destroyed and torn down. But here there's a reference to a, a vineyard that is perfect, flawless. Right. In fact, it's so flawless that God actually wants to show his love to the vineyard by having an enemy to fight. Verse 4, I, I would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I'd march against them. I would burn them up together. I, I want to show how devoted I am to this vineyard. And verse 6, in days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Hmm. So this fruitless, worthless nation will become so greatly fruit-bearing, the whole world will receive its fruit. Right. Yeah, again, we're getting the imagery of Isaiah's you know, vision in 6, where God's cloak fills the whole temple, but God's presence fills the whole earth, right? That's so, right. No. That's right. And so, not, I mean, not like, it, it, this is a tough section, but there, I mean, there's so much good stuff in this section. I know we didn't get through every line of the judgment, but right. wow, the resurrection, this final victory over Satan, the mm-hmm. blessing coming from God's people. Right. It's, it's incredible. So, of course, we're going to have more judgment in the next yep. few chapters, but chapters 20, 28 to 35 bring out the judgment on the wicked and salvation to God's people. Mm-hmm. So we see some of the things that are interesting in this. We see this focus on spiritual blindness, which we've already seen previously, right? We saw this in uh, chapter 6 when Isaiah is given his mission. Oh, they're yeah. not going to see. They're not going to hear. Right. They're not going to respond. We see the same thing in chapter 29, verse 10. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. Yeah. And then we this this spirit of hypocrisy and blindness we see in the following verses, verse thirteen and following. The Lord said, Be, "Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Mm. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people." Yeah, that's taught in the Gospels for sure. Yeah, so yeah, yeah we we hear that for sure that they're they're hypocrites, but God is going to bring blessing right to them, and so. Um, that's, that's kind of a theme throughout this section, that there are people that are stubborn, opposed to God, and, and, and hate God. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, they're so stubborn that they, return, they want to return to the slavery of their ancient years. Right. Right? They want to go back to the chains. Chapter 30, verse 1, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh. So he's pointing out how crazy this is. They're actually going back to their enemy, making some sort of alliance. But spiritually speaking, this is very, very dark. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's so funny. to, And it's a tragedy to see that Israel hasn't even changed since the Exodus. This is the same thing that happened in the in the wilderness, right? Yeah, they wanted to go back into slavery. They wanted to go back under servitude of Pharaoh because they could have leeks or whatever, you know. So <laughs> mm, those leeks, yes, the delicious uh, leeks and melons. Yes, here it's just you know it's just even more of a tragedy because yeah, there's so much more history of God's love and salvation and grace, but then still stubbornness, right? Yeah, yep, and they and they don't want to see. They don't. They have no desire to see. We see in chapter thirty, verse ten. They say to the seers, do not see. And to the <laughs> prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Give us 
what we want to hear. That's not done today in today's church. That, I can think of no parallel to that either. Yeah, wow. Not a single church where they would just choose to to hear something favorable rather than hear God's word. Yeah. Hmm. But, you know, I'm sure it happens. Yeah. Chapter 31, again, he, he confronts them about their desire to go back to Egypt instead of looking to the Holy One of Israel. Yeah. And then, you know, there's a few things throughout this, these chapters that are interesting. One is chapter 34, verse 11. The way God speaks about judgment is actually reminiscent of an earlier portion of Scripture. So it speaks mm, yeah. of how he shall, he shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. So confusion and emptiness are these words tohu and vohu in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And they find their first their first reference in Genesis one two, hmm. where the earth is empty and void, and it's, it's chaos, it's emptiness. And so God is talking about his his judgment as bringing them back to that original pre creation state right. uh, of of chaos and destruction. And so th- then we see uh, finally before we get into the narrative section, we see can I chapter- mention can I mention yeah. just a crazy verse in thirty four verse five. The Lord is, you know, for my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. Mm. It, is, it is gorged with fat. <laughs> yeah. That's a kind of a scary picture of, of God, right? That is that is pretty scary. But it, I mean, it, it, it's not unlike the picture of Jesus in Revelation, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, again, we're seeing, you know, the, the wrathful God in, in both seconds, sections. Are you trying to say that Jesus is God? Uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Oh, wow, that's crazy. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see about that. Yeah, well, you know, we'll, we'll get there, I guess. Chapter 35, amazing, amazing. This picture of, right, right before you get into the, the narrative, just incredible uh, words, right, that mm-hmm. there's going to be this, this, the desert will become this blooming wilderness, yeah. And verse two, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So mm-hmm. this is leading towards that fulfillment of what Isaiah saw in chapter six. Right. And he says, verse three, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who, are, who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, our God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of our God. He will come and save you. And he goes on to speak about how he's going to open the eyes of the blind. He's going to open the ears of the deaf. He's going to give give strength to those who are lame. Right. He's going to redeem the world and fix what's wrong in the world. In verse 10, the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. Mm-hmm. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Amen. I love that. That's, that's familiar language too yeah. that we see in the New Testament. But incredible language about God's redemption. That he's, he's going to work in the in the world. So, so as I said, so much good in these in these passages. Now, why do we have the final section here? Why do we have from thirty six to thirty nine a repetition? I don't know if you if when you're reading this, if you caught this. Hopefully, you did. Mm-hmm. This sounds very familiar. It sounds incredibly familiar. Oh wait, it's an exact repetition of what we saw previously in in Kings and Chronicles. Yeah. Well, even the beginning of Isaiah when it's talking about Ahaz, we've heard some of that, but yeah. But I mean this section is just a repetition. Yeah, exactly. So that must be important because it's repeated, right? There's very few places in scripture that are repeated this many times. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's what's the deal here? Well, we have a picture of what Isaiah is speaking about is is being worked out in the life of Israel. Hmm. Their trust in God results in God's salvation of them. 
Right. Right. That'd be the most simple way to think of it, that they are trusting in God. So the whole idea is, as we've seen before, this Rabshakeh, this uh, official of of Syria, who is speaking on behalf of Sennacherib and saying, why are you trusting in God? Yeah. Don't trust in God. Trust in trust in Sennacherib. Sennacherib's mm-hmm. more, our gods are more powerful. We're more powerful. Don't trust in your God. Don't trust in Isaiah. Don't trust in your king. And Hezekiah decides to reject those words and to trust in God and right. to stand firm in faith. Yeah. And so, and 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 the challenge is from from Isaiah that he responds to these words from uh, the Assyrians is that he says in verse twenty three of chapter thirty seven. He says, whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. Right. You don't know who you're messing with. <laughs> don't, don't mess with God. And so what happens is he, you see this theme that we've seen throughout of that God is in control. God is in control. Verse 26, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? Mm-hmm. I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass. So what you're doing, Sennacherib, is just exactly what God wanted you to do. Remember, this is from Isaiah chapter 10. God's in control of the kings of evil people. And so he's saying, this is is entirely in my control. And so he actually says, here's what's going to happen to you, Sennacherib. You're going to go back to your home, and you're going to die by the sword in your home. And that's, that's what happens. Right. So we see that he's he's struck down. But um, this so verse 34 of chapter 37, he says, By the way he came, by that same way he will return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Hmm. So we see God's defense. He strikes down almost 200,000 Assyrians, and he sends the king packing, and the hmm. king dies in his homeland. So yep. God is in control. God is in control. Right. Now, yeah. at the end of this narrative, we actually see Hezekiah, who is an incredible king in many ways, he fails. Right. As we've already seen, right? So I won't go through it in detail, but he decides not to trust in God. He decides to um, turn to Babylon. And that shows that we're still waiting for the real Davidic king. Right. So God is in control. Faith in God saves you, but we're still waiting for the right king who can lead the people in the right way. Awesome. Um, Lots of judgment, lots of wrath. How's the good news seen in these passages? Yeah, so, I mean, we see connection to the ministry of Christ, maybe not the gospel per se, but the ministry of Christ in Matthew chapter 15, Mm -hmm. quoting from Isaiah 29, right, that he's looking at the hypocrites of his day and saying, Isaiah prophesied of you, (laughs) saying these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is is far from me. So Jesus points to that in his own ministry. He sees he sees a reflection back in the ministry of Isaiah, and of course we we could talk a lot, and we have in the past about how this all this talk of judgment reminds us of the judgment that Christ received on the cross. Yeah, not just reminds us of it. That's, that's a weak way of saying it. The judgment that we would receive, as spoken of in these chapters, was received by Christ on the cross. Yeah. So everything we deserve, which are is are things like what we just read. God has satisfied that by crucifying Christ, right. by allowing him to die at the hands of sinful men according to God's perfect plan to take our punishment, not just the physical punishment, but the full wrath of God yeah. on our behalf. So I know this is familiar for so many of us, but let's not get accustomed to it or get bored with it. Mm-hmm. This is this judgment, as we read about it, we can rejoice knowing that we've been spared from that. Yeah. We're Isaiah, right, being cleansed 
um, but the pain is not put on us, it's put on Christ. Right. So, I mean, that's huge. And then, of course, we saw so much about resurrection in these chapters, and we could look ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, mm-hmm. as well as other passages, but 1 Corinthians 15 sort of being the biggest passage where we see the end of death itself. Right. Where we see death being swallowed up in victory, right? The perishable putting on the imperishable. We see a much fuller understanding of what resurrection is because it's not just some sort of vague promise from God. It's been realized in Christ's resurrection. Right. If we died with him, if we received judgment in him, if we're that closely united with Christ, then we'll also be raised with him. Right. So the resurrection of Jesus, this uh, recreation of, of the, the old body, right, and a new power shows us what kind of life we will live in, in the future and what kind of life we're entering into right now. Right. Yeah. Amen. Not that we are without sickness or we're, we're perfect physically, but that we have entered into the spiritual life that Christ gives to us right now. Yeah. Amen. Eternal life begins today, as you talked about just recently. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Romans 6. Yeah, and that's awesome, and, and even even just the the simple redemption of the earth, right, and it being made new, and like that through the work of Christ, like every single thing, spiritually, physically, the earth, us, his people, everything's resurrected. It's awesome. That's right. Cool. Um, that's all we got for today. Um, we are halfway uh, through our series on the book of Isaiah. We got two more weeks of Isaiah. It's oh, going it to be amazing. It's even better. It, it does get better. This is some of the hardest passages we just finished. But we'll see you next week for the rest, uh, or what, uh, two more weeks of Isaiah. Thanks for joining us for Daily Gospel.